Faces. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. My guest today is Jim Robinault. And Jim is an attorney. He is in the city of Cleveland, here on the North Coast. I think, I think that's what we'll call ourselves, the North Coast, right, of Ohio in, in Cleveland. And Jim has done some really pretty incredible work, and we're going to explore that work today. And I'm looking forward to this conversation because the topic of this podcast, Practical Wisdom for Leaders, I think uh, Jim is going to share some really important practical wisdom for all of us to consider. And I said to him just before we started, I want, to, I want you to tease our listeners enough so that they're interested in this topic. They want to learn more and, and not give it all away, but mind some of the key learnings that he's had as he's done this research. So Jim is the author of a book called Ballots and Bullets. And the setting is Cleveland, Ohio, in, in a very specific way. But the setting is also uh, the late 1960s, uh, United States of America, and what we were experiencing as a nation, not unlike some of what we have experienced in recent times. Jim, would you introduce yourself a little bit, and then maybe we can jump in? Yeah, Scott, thanks. Um, well, I'm a lawyer in Cleveland. I live in Shaker Heights. I have written four books. Uh, I started writing books about 20 years ago, and kind of um, things just came to me, and, and I can talk about how ballots and bullets came to me. But my books have principally been on the presidency and the, in U.S. history. Um, so uh, writing is an advocation of mine. My profession is being a lawyer, and I've had a nice career as a lawyer, but I, I enjoy writing, and I enjoy doing op-eds for the Washington Post and, and elsewhere. Um, and the other thing I do of significance is that I lecture with John Dean, who is Richard Nixon's former White House counsel. And we, we've gone around the country before the pandemic. We went to probably 150 different places to, to do programs for lawyers on ethics, um, which became very important in the last year on uh, when we got hmm. impeachment and that sort of thing. So it's been a it's been a varied career and a lot of different things, but um, I'm principally a, a, an author, uh, a lawyer, and a lecturer. Well, let's talk about this book, Ballots and Bullets. Tell me about the, tell me about the title, and then maybe you can share some stories that will help us better understand what's happening. Ballots and Bullets is uh, named after a Malcolm X speech that he gave in Cleveland in 1964. And uh, it was really Malcolm X leaving the Nation of Islam, moving out on his own. Uh, there's a movie done right now about Malcolm X and uh, Cassius Clay, soon to become Muhammad Ali, and others. When, and that's this period of time in 64 when Malcolm X was leaving the Nation of Islam. 
moving out on his own and becoming more interested in getting involved in politics. Um, when he was with the Nation of Islam, they their idea was that dealing with whites was like dealing with devils, so you didn't deal with them. So you did not vote, you did not get involved in politics. So now he wants to. That's why he named this speech the ballot or the bullet after, you know, voting uh. or revolution. And, um, you know, for him, it just was a phrase that kept occurring to him as he was thinking about what he was doing in his transition. And it's really liberty or death. You know, we're either going to get this right through the ballot or it's going to be revolution and uh, black revolution in particular. He gave that speech for the first time at a church here in Cleveland in 1964. The same church where a year earlier, uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. King, came to Cleveland from Birmingham, Alabama, during that great time when he was protesting down there and was put in jail and wrote his very famous uh, letter from Birmingham jail. He came to Cleveland to raise bail money and spoke at this exact same church uh, on the east side of Cleveland. So it's a very historic church, but um, the the ballot or the bullet is really about uh, the black freedom movement how its trajectory came through Cleveland in particular, and uh, what happened to it and, you know, how it all worked out and what what influence it had on our history. How is Cleveland a central character in this whole narrative? Cleveland is kind of emblematic for the country in general. What happened in Cleveland in microcosm happened in the country at the same time. So during this time, Cleveland, like many northern cities, had experienced a great a series of great migrations from the South, where African Americans left the South in large numbers, principally during and after the two wars. Um, and they moved north to get away from Jim Crow, but also because of jobs and uh, war industries and that sort of thing. So Cleveland was very much like that. And what the problem was that so many uh, African Americans came to town that they were essentially crowded into ghettos on the east side of Cleveland, as in Chicago, as in Detroit, as Mm. in uh, Newark, as in Watts. And the reason was that African-Americans coming to a northern city, although they thought it would be a better life, actually found out they couldn't move into white neighborhoods because of redlining, because of mortgage stuff and, and other things. And that, you know, instead they, they were limited to small areas that quickly became very overcrowded, bad schools, bad housing, very poor jobs or low paying jobs. Eventually, these, these neighborhoods became flashpoints for violence and for drugs and prostitution and all the things that go along with poverty. Uh, and the police were used by the cities to try to control things. And so the police became very repressive, a lot of police violence against African-Americans, and eventually it all broke out into rioting, rebellions, and so forth in the late 60s. That's exactly what happened here in Cleveland. Well, and I know through the process, you interviewed and worked with some of the individuals who were involved in this era, correct? Yeah, there were were a number of of older African-American men uh, who were young black nationalists back in 1968, who I've become good friends with and uh, have shared a lot with them. One guy in particular who became an imam. And by the way, that was a very common thing for African-Americans at the time to leave the Christian church and move uh, and become mm-hmm. and move to Islam. 
because they felt the Christian church had let them down and was the church of slavery and so forth. And so to them, the freedom religion was uh, to become Muslim, exactly what Malcolm X. But, um, you know, they all have names like Mutawaf Shahid, who's this imam that I know very well. And these guys, to my surprise, uh, welcomed me when I was researching this book, had me to their mosque and sat down with me and then shared an enormous amount of information about what had happened, how it had happened, who the characters were, and so forth. So I, I was really helped by them in the process of writing this book. Are there, are there stories that you could share that stood out? Yeah, I, I think the main story that comes out in this book is the, the guy who became the mayor of Cleveland in 1967. His name was Carl Stokes. It's a name, if you're in Cleveland, you know very well. There are a dozen buildings named after the Stokes brothers. Uh, Carl was the mayor, and his brother Lou was the 15-term Congress, congressperson from, from this area. And Carl, the story of the election in 1967 of Carl Stokes is really critical to this, this whole thing, because he was the Barack Obama of his day. He was young charismatic. He was a lawyer by training, um, a very good speaker. And he rose during the time that this uh, trouble was happening in the, in the urban areas, principally because the, the white leadership, the business leadership in Cleveland, wanted to find a way to get away from the violence. And they thought if they helped elect an African-American mayor, that things would change. And so he's that guy. He is the Barack Obama. He breaks the ceiling He's the first African-American mayor of a major U.S. city. And this is what uh, blacks, including Dr. King, saw at the time, which was they were going to convert the civil rights movement in getting the right to vote, you know, John Lewis and so forth, to now black power and to use political power to change things. And what we found out back then is the same lesson we're learning today, which is change like that, which is revolutionary, provokes a huge backlash. Uh, and it happened back then. And so that began, began the backlash that becomes the Nixon counter-revolution, you know, cycle through to the Trump revolt today. It's all based on race. But the point for leadership is that it takes enormous courage uh, to make these changes. And then you suffer a series of setbacks. And the only thing you can do is keep moving and keep pushing knowing that you're going to fight these forces, even though at the time of your victory, Barack Obama becoming president, we've gotten beyond race. And here we are more deeply involved in racial prejudice and problems than ever before. Um, you, you have to understand as a leader that when you are that courageous and you lead like that, you're going to face enormous counterpressure. And the point of leadership is keep going keep pushing. Um, and we're kind of seeing that today, even with, you know, Biden's election and hopefully the change in the Senate here too. You just said something really beautiful, Jim. The point of leadership is keep going. The point of leadership. So tell me some stories about, and I, I know this might not be the focus of the book, but what was some of the backlash that Stokes experienced in his first term? Well, it's interesting that that whole concept of keep going, if you, or the people listening to this podcast want to listen to, um, one of Martin Luther King's greatest speeches, I think. You know, obviously sure. everybody knows the I Have a Dream speech from the March on Washington. The speech that he gave here in Cleveland when he came here to support Stokes running for mayor was given in April. It's like April 26, 19, 
67. So it's a year before he's killed. And he goes to see the students at Glenville High School. And that speech, fortunately for us, was recorded and it was only discovered mm. like five or six years ago. Uh, and the recording's beautiful. It's online. You go to YouTube, just put in Martin Luther King and Glenville. But that speech he's giving to these young students, many of whom were in the Huff Rebellion two years earlier. And he is essentially saying, look, you, th- this, this struggle has been long and hard. We were here before the Pilgrims were here. We were here before Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. We were here before, you know, the Civil War. And his point is, keep going. And the way he wrapped it mm. up is quite beautiful because he quotes a poet who's a very famous African-American mm-hmm. poet, Langston Hughes, who incidentally went to high school in Cleveland. And then he went to Harlem and became a very well-known Harlem Renaissance poet. He's got a poem called Mother to Son. Uh, and at the end of this speech, Dr. King is saying to these young students, get involved in politics, help elect this mayor. And, you know, if you, can, if you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. Mm. If you can't walk, crawl. But whatever you do, keep going. And he quotes the Mother to Son poem to wrap it up, which is equally beautiful. Probably one of Langston Hughes's most well-known mother to son. It's the mother speaking to the son, saying, son, you know, life for me ain't been no crystal staircase. I've gone up this stair. It's got tacks in it, boards. I go into the dark, you know, where nobody's even been. But I I kept going and I kept going. And son, you know, you got to keep going too. So that, that was King's message. He, again, he also suffers the the slings, the arrows, and eventually, you know, the bullet that, that takes his life for his, for his yeah. courage and leadership. But what he understood was this concept that you are going to face enormous challenges if you're a courageous leader, and you've got to keep going. And, um, you know, this, this, this came to fruition in Cleveland, uh, and I can tell that story in a minute, but uh, about why, how that happened. Um, but Stokes gets elected in 67. It's a day of jubilation. Martin Luther King is here in Cleveland. Stokes doesn't have him come down for the celebration because he's trying to consolidate his, his base. Um, and that base includes a small amount of the sliver of white voters, and he doesn't want to alienate people. And King is seen as a very troublesome figure at the time, although Stokes liked him and admired him and appreciated what he had done. You go back and look at the film, King's here in Cleveland, and he's not standing next to him at that victory party. So King, not happy about it, but understands, leaves town, and five months later, he's assassinated in Memphis. And that begins a spiral of problems. In, in this story, like the American story, violence begets violence, and it's a cycle, and it's a vicious cycle, and it's race-based violence. So King is assassinated, and all of a sudden, the black nationalists here in Cleveland become more radicalized by, by what had happened, and they begin to arm themselves. At the same time, uh, Stokes is trying to address the issues, the underlying issues that caused the violence, which is poverty, joblessness, you know, poor housing, poor education. And he creates a, um, a fund that's originally kind of a small fund idea, but it's to get money to Glenville and Huff those two neighborhoods in Cleveland impacted 
for all of these things, housing, health care, et cetera. And he calls it Cleveland Now. And the reason he calls it Cleveland Now is that it's in honor of Dr. King. Dr. King in the South had a slogan when he did Selma and Birmingham, Freedom Now. Um, so this is Cleveland Now. And what Stokes does is creates this idea, and then the federal government picks up on it as a part of LBJ's War on Poverty and the Great Society. Within a month, it's a billion-dollar program over 10 years to spend on all these things. In Cleveland, a billion dollars with a B in 1968. Huge. And so, again, everything's going in the right direction. But guess what? Those uh, nationalists who are now totally alienated because of King's assassination use money from Cleveland now that they were getting for a summer program to buy weapons and to buy stuff to start a war with the police. And they, this is a political war. They, they are not, it's not turf. It's not anything else other than a political war, a statement that they're going to take on the police and they buy guns and rifles. And after the shootout, which happens in July of 1968, they find out very quickly that Cleveland Now funds have been used. Now, unbeknownst to anybody in Cleveland now to do this, and that's the end of Cleveland now. So the violence ends the very program that's trying to address the violence. Nationally, these riots across the nation in various cities really ends LBJ's war on poverty and the Great Society and brings in the Nixon counter-revolution. And that is where we go from the war on poverty to mass incarceration and the war on drugs. And we've been in that cycle for the last 50 years. Well, I read a very powerful, you may have seen it, Harvard Business Review case that, that speaks to the African-American experience in the United States. Very powerful document. And then uh, the summer watched, for the first time I had not seen it, the, the film 13th, which explores a lot of the, the history that uh, I, was, I was unaware of in, in many ways. Yep. And... How, how do we get out of that, of, of this phase? You said 50, you said 50 years. It, maybe the answer is just keep going. <laughs> well, the answer is keep going, but you do have to finally tee it up and, and do some of the right things that people were trying to do 50 years ago. So um, um, there's a real interesting connect between then and now and where, where we really go. I wrote a piece for um, the Daily Beast two weeks ago on this. In 1968, as a part of what was going on, you know, Martin Luther King is killed, Bobby Kennedy then is killed, and Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, becomes the, the guy who's going to get the nomination in August in that wild convention where the, you know, Mayor Daley beats up all the protesters. But prior to that, in July, he, Hubert Humphrey comes to Cleveland. So he's the vice president. He's known for civil rights. He was former Minneapolis mayor and then Minnesota senator. He comes to Cleveland because he likes Carl Stokes. He likes what he's doing with Cleveland now. And he comes to Cleveland and he says, look, if I'm elected president, this is what I'm going to do to address these urban problems that we have right now. I think we need a Marshall Plan for our cities. So the Marshall Plan was very much in everybody's mind then. Uh, it was the effort by Truman after the Second World War to rebuild Europe that had been just destroyed by the war. And the United States put a bunch of money in 
He was named after George Marshall, who was the Secretary of State and a former general uh, for Truman. And, you know, so that really got Europe back up on its feet again. And Humphrey said, I want to do a Marshall Plan, and I want it to be like Cleveland now. He literally says, this is the model. Um, you, you know, we need to get better housing, better education. We need to do a lot of different things. But it's really about investing money in defeating poverty, because to defeat racism, you have to defeat poverty. I mean, it's just they're, they're two sides of one coin. And, and so he calls for that. And then the shootout happens literally 20 days later in Cleveland, where he had just done that. And Nixon goes to the convention uh, to accept the nomination in Miami Beach two weeks after that. And he says, we live in a dark time. Police are being killed and we hear sirens in the streets. I'm yep. the law and order candidate. It is the exact duplicate of what Donald Trump did here in Cleveland in 2016. And Donald Trump said he was, or his campaign manager said he was mimicking Nixon. But the whole point was, you have to spend a lot of money to address these issues of poverty and, and racism all at the same time. So uh, Nixon comes in and he takes the Office of Economic Opportunity, which was the engine of, of the Great Society's War on Poverty, and he puts Donald Rumsfeld in charge of it, literally. And he kills it. And he puts him in charge of it to kill it. So you go from Sergeant Shriver a Kennedy person as the head of that to Donald Rumsfeld. You know what's going to yeah. happen. It ends. And that ends the commitment to the war on poverty and this, you know, this, um, this great investment that's needed. Okay, so fast forward 50 years. The person who was just nominated by Joe Biden to become the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development is our Congresswoman yeah. Marsha Fudge from here. And by the way, she stands on the shoulders of the Stokes. She's in the seat that, that Lou Stokes held for 15 terms. So Marsha has been named to this critical position of housing and urban development. And guess what? It's time for another call for a Marshall Plan for our urban areas. And guess what? I'm not the one who did it. Eight mayors a month ago wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, we need to have a Marshall yeah. Plan for our cities. And I don't, they didn't mention it. I don't even think they knew that Humphrey had done that in Cleveland 50 years ago. But that's the point. The point is, spend that money, create um, opportunities, create jobs, create, you know, good health, you know, all the things that are needed. Because, man, if you go down and walk the streets of Huff and of Glenville, which I've done, you know, it's like a third world in some places there. And we are the poorest city in America. And there we were on the verge 50 years ago. Uh, imagine if a billion dollars had been spent on the east side of Cleveland. Imagine. So I think that there is a direct connect between then and now. And I wrote about that when I wrote about the article that was in the Daily Beast. Um, that, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Marsha Fudge handles her job. But she's got a real opportunity given that she comes from Cleveland. And, you know, it could be a model, again, to try to work some of these issues out. Well, and what's interesting, Jim, is we talked a little bit about this before we got we got on before we started recording, but you had mentioned you know poverty, joblessness, education; these all lead to violence, and a larger percentage that that middle class. I've said this before in this podcast. 
I'm 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 not sure how America works without a strong middle class. Well, I think I think it's a matter of priorities. You've got to change your priorities. It matters where you spend your money and it matters what your priorities are. If your priorities are that you're going to lower the tax rates on the super wealthy who do not need it and and thereby deprive cities and other areas of the benefits that they need and and deserve. So you start with the tax, you know, what you're doing. You should be taxing the very high level, very wealthy people at a at a rate commensurate actually with what you know the middle class is being taxed. Um, you know, you think about these companies like Amazon paying no taxes, it's absurd. And so you start with that. I mean, you've got to get the revenue corrected, but where it's coming from and, you know, get the revenue and not just give it away to people who make, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars um, while other people have to have two jobs to make a, a living wage even. And not even then, they're still on food stamps. So get that right. Then straighten out your priorities. You've got a lot of money to spend at the federal level. And as I as I was saying to you, we spend just gobs of money on defense for high, you know, level things like submarines and bunker billion dollar bombs, and we just spend and waste a lot of money on defense. Frankly, back in the '60s, that was one of the things Bobby Kennedy talked about. You know, stop spending all this money. We've got nuclear yeah. weapons. Who's going to screw with us? You know, really, do, and when you have those armies and you have those weapons, you get you get stupid about what you do, and you go around and start starting wars that are ridiculous, which we've seen in the last two decades. So, you know, stop spending the money so much on defense. You still need to spend money on defense, but it really could be slashed considerably, and start spending money on things like think about like the New Deal when FDR came in, he created. A conservation corps. He created, you know, agriculture groups. He created stuff, um, public works. You know, some of the public works in Cleveland are from that era. But create these things. And today we have those needs. We have the need for a national health service. I mean, it's a critical need. And it's probably going to be an ongoing need to help us combat, you know, any future uh, pandemic problems. But just even to get through this one. We need to spend a lot of money there. There's a lot of good jobs you could create uh, doing that. We also, you know, we need to spend the money, as we've said, on the urban areas, and we need to spend money on infrastructure. And we really need to spend money on creating a green world and a green economy. Uh, We really need to spend that money. That creates jobs. Those are, that's how you create good jobs for people in the middle. If you're just sensible about what you're doing and not wasteful and don't give all the money to the people at the very top and, and you know, leave everybody at the bottom to fend for themselves. There's just a lot we can do, but it's all about priorities and figuring out what you're going to spend, where you're going to spend it. And, um, and, you know, this economy already booms in a lot of ways. It would, I think this would be the way to help um, bolster that middle class that you're talking about. A lot of opportunity. A lot of opportunity. Yeah, it's just a matter of priorities, which is why this question of whether the Senate's going to, you know, turn Democratic is really important. 
because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done very quickly. Mainly, we need to defeat this pandemic. And, you know, that just needs to be done. We've been screwing around with it for a year and it's gotten out of control. We really need to go to war against that, uh, that virus and get people vaccinated. But then the other stuff needs to, to come online, too. You need to get money to people. You need to start supporting, you know, these great infrastructure bills and, you know, creating incentives for people to, to go into wind, solar, and all sorts of other power. There's just, there's a lot to be done. Um, but it, you can't do it if you've got this divided government that we've had for the past, well, since 2010, ever since Mitch McConnell became the majority leader. You know, we've just had this divided government, which is done very little it's we we are stuck other other countries in the world you know china just started in in their high schools courses on artificial intelligence uh, which will be the nuclear weapons of of the coming decades is <laughs> the, the technology yeah right anything else jim that stands out for you a lesson from the past that we need to be very present with i mean this is just fascinating thank you so much for sharing your wisdom anything else stand out for you yeah well i think that you know i think that leadership is an interesting thing because it's a combination of charisma and you know leader having a charismatic quality to them. We've never had any great leaders that weren't charismatic. And nuts and bolts, you know, practical stuff, being able to understand how you get things done. Joe Biden is is less on the charismatic, mm. more on the nuts and bolts, which, which frankly, we're going to need a lot of right now. But I think as people look over the horizon, they need to look to see, you know, where is that next charismatic leader from who is not, you know, an evil charismatic leader? And I think that, uh, you know, that's, if you look back over the history that I've written, FDR clearly was a charismatic leader who understood and had vision and understood how government worked and, you know, got us through not only the Great Depression, but the, the great, greatest war in America, in world history. But it took the nuts and bolts people to get him elected. And so I think leadership is about conquering both of those things and finding somebody who fits both of those categories of visionary, charismatic leadership. But you got to be careful because Donald Trump is extremely charismatic. And whatever you say about him, he's got his vision about what he thinks things should be. And yep. that's what people are drawn to. And you got to be careful about you know, charismatic leaders, but you still need to have them eventually. Uh, Joe Biden has a bit of that in part because of his own personal struggles and how he's so super empathetic. But he doesn't have as much of it, for example, as Trump did. I mean, Trump just was off the charts charisma, like John F. Kennedy was mm -hmm. off the charts charisma, brought Ronald Reagan. It, it's important to look for those qualities in a leader, but you got to make sure they're not demagogues. And that's the, that's the line that needs to be drawn by people who understand and are educated and think about it and read history and understand history and how, how, where the great leaders came from and where the dangers were. Well, it, it's that, that charisma rooted in character, right? I mean, no human is perfect, yeah. but I, the, the podcast I just released this week, it, it was with a gentleman named Ron Riggio, and he wrote a book called Daily Leadership Development. And really one of the first lines in the book, it, it basically says leadership is about character. That, that if that core isn't yeah. there, 
it's it can go to some pretty fascinating places. And again, we can look to world history to to uh, kind of observe people who may have been effective, but were they good? And what was it rooted in character, or was yeah. it narcissistic? Was it was it uh, self serving, or was it in service to right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another, there's another piece that I wrote uh, for a place called history news network, um, which I've written a lot for. And I wrote this before Biden, when Biden was struggling, actually, there was an article that came about how he was a stutterer, which I didn't know. I had never heard about it. It was in the Atlantic. I don't know if you read it or not. It was a great article, you know, what Joe Biden can't bring himself to say, I think was the name of it. But uh, he always downplayed it. That's why you never knew about it. But you see it now that you know that he was, you know, quite a stutter. So I started thinking about it. And I, again, went back to my, uh, the, the person I looked the most to, FDR. And I started thinking, well, what is it that makes these guys, you know, great leaders? And um, I say, you know, FDR was very much like Donald Trump. Both of them from New York, both of them from families of wealth. And there the comparison ends, because uh, FDR ends up becoming FDR and Donald Trump becomes Donald Trump. Why? So the question was why? And then I was thinking, about how does that fit in with this Biden struggle when he was a kid? And what I figured out is something that I think is really interesting. When Bobby Kennedy announced that uh, Martin Luther King had been killed in Indianapolis, that very famous clip, to, to an African-American crowd, he quotes the Greek um, uh, poet Aeschylus, I think is how you say that name, um, who he, he, that was one of the things Bobby did is he memorized some of his poetry. But there's a piece that he writes about in which he says, essentially, the pain that, that we can't get away from, you know, drips on us um, and against our will, we, we, we become, we get wisdom. And we, we, you know, it's that pain that, that, that brings us through and not only brings us through, but creates the wisdom through against our will, through the awful grace of God, I think is the, yeah. is the, the piece in it. He quotes that at the very end after talking to people, essentially saying, you know, this pain, and he had just been through the pain with his brother being brutally assassinated. So I started thinking about that and I think, well, FDR, the reason FDR became FDR is he went through a period of extreme, excruciating pain and struggle. He ran for uh, vice president with an Ohio uh, governor, James Cox, against Warren Harding, an Ohio senator, in 1920, 100 years ago, and could walk. And he was a privileged boy from Hyde Park and a little bit on the arrogant side, but, you know, had yeah. the golden name Roosevelt. And then a, a year later, after going to a Boy Scout camp and swimming with the Boy Scouts, he comes down with, you know, chills and aches and pains, and he can't get out of bed the next day. And so he's suddenly uh, unable to walk. And he spends the next eight years trying to teach himself to walk down in Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, and he can't do it. For the rest of his life, he wears braces. People don't understand. He literally could not use his legs. He could only have them put in braces and he could yeah. hold on to people and pull himself with his arms. But it was that struggle that transformed his character, as you've talked about. And Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about this, that, you know, this was the thing that changed him 
to a very empathetic, sympathetic person so that when he gets to the Great Depression, he oozes that empathy for people and understands it intrinsically. And that's exactly what Biden went through as a young kid being yeah. teased about his stuttering. He's, he's super empathetic. And then he goes through incredible pain, you know, with his wife being killed and his, um, and his daughter and literally within days of him being elected as a senator. So it's that character is extremely important. And I think, you know, to look to charismatic people, I think if you're looking for character, you got to look for people who struggled and overcome their struggle as opposed to people who it's been just given to as a princeling. Um, and they have no reason to really develop their character. In fact, just the opposite happens. They do become narcissists, just, you know, big time thinking they can do no wrong. Um, and that's, I think, the distinction. It's going to be very, very interesting to watch the, the story continue to unfold over the next four years. And yes. I, think, yes. I think there's an opportunity here. There's a, there's a wonderful opportunity. I, I, keep, I keep asking podcast guests, and this isn't anything I'm asking you to answer right now, but what type of leadership kind of works above this partisanship works above the, the, the media narratives? What, what type of leadership works above so that we as a, as a country can become unstuck and, and move forward and keep going, as you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just keep going. Well, I think, I think that's the biggest part of it is that to have really, truly great leadership, you just have to have someone who understands yeah. that they've got to be a fighter. You know, and doesn't mean that you fight. That's an individual, yes. whether they're leading Sherwin Williams or the Cleveland Clinic or the United States. That's a that's a challenging role. That's chronic stress for years on end, right? Right, right. That's exactly right. And you know, they're only human, so they don't know that what yep. they're doing is exactly right. But they have an innate feeling that they understand things. They also, if they're really good leaders are really good listeners and able to be self-critical at times and understand and, and accept their mistakes and move on. But again, I keep coming back to this. It's understanding you just got to keep fighting through it and understanding that you're going to have to fight through it, that it's not, even though at times it feels like everything's falling into place, isn't this great? You know, a week later, something happens that throws yeah. the whole thing into chaos and you got to just keep going through the storm, you know, keep guiding guiding people based on your best instincts and, you know, what you're hearing from your best advisors. I always ask guests what they're consuming right now. Are there any podcasts or I will, I will place, I mean, this, this has been a wonderful episode, rich with resources. So I'm going to post links to your books, to your website, to the podcast that's on your website that really will take listeners more in depth into, into the story that we started with today. But what are you listening to? What are you streaming? What are you consuming that you think listeners might be interested in? Yeah, the the, um, the thing that I actually have uh, spent a lot of time during this summer and up till now listening to what I think is one of the best podcasts of all time is called 13 Minutes to the Moon. And it, it's 13 minutes to the moon. And it, it's in reference to when they first fire the rockets to take them down to the moon. It's 13 minutes from that point down to the moon. But it's about both Apollo 11 and getting to Apollo 11 and the moon. 
and then Apollo 13. So they're two different episodes or two different seasons. But it's done by this guy who's, it's a BBC production. Uh, and it's done by this guy who's a doctor by training, but has been fascinated by, um, you know, the this, the uh, whole NASA thing. But you talk about lessons in leadership. This thing is like just uh. chock full of it because um, it it really, it's masterful. It's absolutely masterful. It's dramatic. These people who are at mission control. A lot of them are 26 years old. I mean, the average age is incredibly young. And they're faced with these decisions of, you know, like Neil Armstrong is getting down close to the moon and suddenly they're about to hit a bunch of boulders and he's got to keep it going, but he doesn't have enough fuel. And he's got to just guide it himself. And they're faced with the no-go decision. You know, do we go? No go. You know, and the 26-year-olds, you know, who, who don't know much about anything, but you listen to them guide themselves through this stuff and you see how they work as a team you see how they deal with enormous pressure and uncertainty and yet they prepared and prepared and prepared but ultimately all that preparation pays off only because at critical points somebody makes the right decision and anyway it is it is truly good if you start listening to it you will not be able to stop it is you know, one episode to the next. It's very well done. They have a lot of the, because all that stuff was recorded, they have all of the audio of Mission Control talking to the astronauts and um, just the whole setup of Apollo, just the enormity of that, you know, from Kennedy saying, we're going to go to the moon in this decade and then making it happen, even though Apollo 1, you know, the astronauts burn up in the capsule, you know, in the middle of all of it. It just is it is the most remarkable thing man has ever done. And this story gives it that feeling that you're listening to the most remarkable thing that may ever be done, um, given the time and the technology. Well, yeah, they were doing this on like a Nokia phone, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a whole series on that. And by the way, this program, even, uh, you know, even though the whole thing was to get us to the moon and all that stuff, it really jump-started the whole computer age. in a dramatic way we are we are decades and decades ahead of where we should be because so much was done under that pressure cooker to get this you know to create a computer to guide them once they started that 13 minutes um, it was supposed to be all totally by computer it was only at the end that neil armstrong now the reason i am so attracted to this yeah. is that when i was a kid i grew up in lima ohio over in the western part of the state and um Lima is 16 miles from Wapakoneta, Ohio, where Neil Armstrong is from. And I've always thought 500 years from now, people will know Neil Armstrong's name. They may not even know like Franklin Roosevelt's name 500 years from now. Think about James 500 years ago. Uh, They may not know about, you know, who went, who, you know, who was involved truly in the Second World War, but they will know the first human who walked on the moon. Um, And this guy grew up 16 miles from where I grew up, you know, in this farm country um, out there. Uh, we always knew Wapak and as Wapak, you know. Uh, so I have kind of this internal connection to it that I, that I have. And then when we were kids, my dad used to take us to Florida for spring break. And we went to what was called Cape Canaveral originally, uh, and then became Cape Kennedy. And, you know, I saw those Apollo rockets being assembled. Um, yeah. It, you know, it, in it, 
Cocoa Beach yep. is right where we would stay. It's right there. And, you know, so there's this wonderful memory of being in sun and finally getting through the winter, but also this, you know, just really cool thing of seeing, uh, you know, going over and, and getting a tour of the of the them putting together these rockets that were hmm. going to, you know, change the world. Really fun. But it's, I'm telling you, it is, you will not be able to stop listening to it once you start. Jim, can we do this again, please, at some point? Sure. Uh, I would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Fascinating conversation. Everybody who's listening, there will be all kinds of resources to speeches and writings and resources in the show notes. Jim, Happy New Year. Thank you for doing what you do and be well. Thanks, Scott. A really, really interesting conversation. and. As I sit here and reflect on our conversation, it reminds me of a report that was released in the city of Cleveland in 2017. It was called Stokes, Honoring the Past, Inspiring the Future. Carl B. Stokes, a 50-year legacy in policy. Now, many of the challenges that he worked to address, housing, health, safety, education, economic disparity, uh, the report suggested many of them still exist. So I go to one of my favorite quotes, every system's perfectly designed for the results that it achieves. So why is it, given many, many well-intentioned individuals who've tried to work these problems, work these challenges, why have we not made more progress in 50 years? An incredible leadership challenge, incredibly complex. There's a system at play here. And how do we work on the system, in the system, tweak, alter, turn a dial, pull a lever to develop and shape a new system that yields new results? And for me, that's the leadership challenge. As he said, violence begets violence. That's not the answer. But working on the system, trying new things, experimenting, tackling these adaptive challenges, that's leadership. That's the puzzle. And I hope this episode has given you plenty to reflect on because I think Cleveland, in many ways, is a microcosm of that time and of this time. So what can we do to create a better future for those who follow? As always, thank you for listening in. Take care, everybody. Be well and keep doing good in the world. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.